Please join us every week for a new episode of Understanding the Human Condition with Dr. James Flowers. Dr. Flowers and his most admired mentors, respected colleagues, and VIP guests will share valuable insight into underlying health causes, conditions, and issues. These in-depth yet approachable episodes are a great resource for both private individuals and industry professionals. Our esteemed host, Dr. James Flowers, is one of the most recognized and respected names in the field of chronic pain, mental health, and substance use disorders, both nationally and internationally. Dr. Flowers is the founder of J. Flowers Health Institute, located in Houston, Texas. For more information about J. Flowers Health Institute and its concierge services, go to jflowershealth.com or dial 713-783-6655. And be sure to mention this podcast. Welcome, everyone, to Understanding the Human Condition, Episode 2, with your host, Dr. James Flowers. Hey, Robin. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. This is so exciting. Episode two, Dr. Bryant. Yeah, yeah. glad to be here. So for everyone um, who didn't listen to the last podcast, our first one, um, this is Dr. James Flowers, and he is the founder of the J. Flowers Health Institute. I'm Robin French. I'm VP of Concierge Relations, and we brought a guest today, Dr. Fawn Bryant. Welcome, Dr. Bryant. All right. Thank you for coming and thank you for being a part of this. I'm so happy to have uh, Dr. Bryant as a part of J. Flowers Health Institute. I've known Dr. Bryant, we'll talk about that in a minute, for quite a few years. But uh, I wanted to read everybody just a little bit about uh, Dr. Bryant and read a short bio here. <clears throat> Dr. Bryant has been a mental health uh, care provider, trainer, and educator for over 30 years. He brings a wealth of experience and expertise in the evaluation and treatment of the full spectrum of psychological, behavioral, and relational problems to the J. Flowers Health Institute. Dr. Bryant is, a li is licensed as a marriage and family therapist, professional counselor, and also a chemical dependency counselor. His career has included three decades of clinical service, clinical education, and executive management experience in large healthcare corporation settings, substance use disorder treatment centers, a large military hospital, clinical pastoral care, and as a professor in higher education. Dr. Bryant has had a, a very particular set of skills that he's developed over a long career that he's equipped himself to identify the root causes of dysfunction and create a plan of care that moves individuals and families in the direction of recovery and wellness. So welcome, Dr. Bryant. Welcome. Thank you. So for the both of you, Dr. Bryant and Dr. Flowers, can you share with the audience how you met, your journey to getting together, and how that all happened? You bet. Dr. Bryant, I'll yeah. let you kind of okay. lead the way on that. I'll start with that. I was working at a at a substance use disorder treatment center here in Houston. This was about 15, maybe about 10 years ago. And we were doing a really good job of treating substance use disorder, but there was something missing. There was this emergence of the opioid epidemic. And the, the executives at the hospital there knew that it was time to do something about this, to offer an alternative to chronic management of pain with, mm -hmm. with opiates. And that's where Dr. Flowers showed up. And Dr. Flowers came in and developed a opioid uh, pain recovery program. And uh -huh. it was a phenomenal success. We saw patients come in who had been taking opioids for decades to manage some kind of pain. And when they would come into the program and not only get
get detoxed off the opiates, but also they received physical therapy. They experienced some of the tools like mindfulness. They learned how to reorganize their thoughts and their reaction to their body. Uh, we literally saw people that came in in wheelchairs leave walking 30 days later. So that's, that's how I met Dr. Flowers. Wow. That's exactly how we met. You bet. It was an amazing program uh, here in Houston. Still is a great program here in Houston. And do you remember that woman that came in, speaking of coming in on a wheelchair, is there was a woman from San Antonio, Texas, who, who uh, had been taking, she had started out with a very small two millimeter um, tumor in her cervical spine. And she was seen as a patient at MD Anderson and they removed the tumor. And when they removed the tumor, uh, Robin, they clipped a nerve in the cervical spine, which is very painful. Uh, and it is indeed can become a chronic painful condition. And because she was at MD Anderson as a, as a cancer patient, they removed the tumor, cut the, cut the uh, nerve. So they decided to put her on an opiate right away Ooh. for acute pain. Uh, non, uh, it was non-terminal cancer. So I disagree with putting her on an opiate mm -hmm. right away, but nonetheless they did. And over time, she became very addicted to Oxycontin, Oxycodone, morphine, and it just continued throughout the years. It was a very successful uh, business family in San Antonio, and uh, it was a husband and wife, and they had three grandchildren. And over a three-year period, literally, uh, this woman went from uh, basically no pain to living a life of pain and mm -hmm. unable to lift her grandchildren, unable to really function. They lost their business. It was a multi-million dollar a year profitable business. They lost their business. And she continued to uh, take something called Actique. And Actique is a kind of somewhat like a hydromorphone medication, and it's filled with sugar, and you suck on it like a lollipop. And so I remember this case now, the lollipops. Yeah, the lollipop case, we called it. Yeah. <laughs> so she came in and, and, and uh, met with me, uh, ended up staying in the program for 60 days. She was in a wheelchair when she came in. Her teeth had been really rotted out because she, that was all the sugar in the, uh -huh. in the lollipop, sucking on it 24 hours a day. Her husband, Robin, was spending $105,000 a month out of his pocket on her medication oh, wow. uh, because insurance refused to pay for it and said, you don't meet criteria. Yeah. So oh he was spending $100,000 a month on medication. Spent 60 days in the program. We did, as Dr. Bryant said, mindfulness, meditation, yoga, Tai Chi, cognitive behavioral therapy, lots of physical therapy. And when she left 60 days later, she was lightly jogging about a mile and a half to two miles a day yeah. wow. and yeah. taking zero opiate medications yeah. at all. And that's been several years ago. Right. And I happen to know because sometimes patients will keep in touch with me that she continues to be pain-free, uh, living an amazing life. They've rebuilt their company and have a great life together. And that's how mm -hmm. Dr. Bryant wow. and I met. So yeah. um, I was thrilled that, that uh, Dr. Bryant decided to to join us at the J Flowers Health Institute. And it's been great having you uh, with us. So Dr. Bryant, would you explain to the audience, I think it'd be great to start with, why don't you tell us what a 
substance use disorder is as a diagnostic term. All right, yeah. You know, substance use disorder, that's the term we use it in the mental health care industry to refer to a problematic relationship with an intoxicating substance. And everybody knows what addiction is. You know, we have all mm-hmm. these images in the movies and on TV shows of addiction or the addict. The problem is, though, that that really only represents about five, maybe 10 percent of people who have a diagnosable Mm -hmm. substance use disorder. I think what happens then is the general population, when they think of addiction or substance use disorder, they think of that caricature that's the extreme case. In, Mm -hmm. In reality, substance use disorder is diagnosed on a spectrum. It's a progressive condition that gets worse over time. And the other good news, you know, one of the things that that really inspires me in my work is I I wanna help people to experience wellness in their life. Mm -hmm. And it is so much better prognosis Mm -hmm. when we can work with someone in the earlier stages of the project, uh, of the progression of Mm -hmm. the disease, as well as work with them when they're they're in a less severe case. Mm -hmm. So, that's substance use disorder. I know people refer to it as addiction, which sure everyone knows what you're talking about. But in reality, people have these symptoms. They have these indicators in graduating degrees that manifest in their life. And they can get help really early on. And within about three months, they can resolve this problem. Mm-hmm. And go into yeah. remission. As go we into say. remission. That's right. Can you talk a little bit about that spectrum of okay. disorders? Sure. Yeah. So there's 11 indicators that make up a substance use disorder, regardless of whatever the drug is. And those 11 symptoms, the first one is tolerance, Mm -hmm. which it takes more of the substance to get the effect. Withdrawal is another symptom where people experience kind of the opposite of what intoxication does. Uh, Another uh, indicator of of a substance use disorder is people end up taking more than they intended. We see this particularly with prescriptions where people run out. That's exactly what I was just thinking of in in the chronic pain world with opiates, right? Is, you know, opiates were intended for short-term use and they often become chronic. And when we use opiates over time, we develop something called hyperalgesia, right? Which means we have a decreased, uh, uh, increased tolerance, I'm sorry, for that particular medication. And it takes more medication to achieve the same response. In other words, lower pain. So people sometimes double and triple their use of Oxycontin because their tolerance for that medication has gone up. And their tolerance for pain has gone down. And hyperalgesia really is a sense of an increased sense of sensitivity to pain. So it takes more medication. So you're exactly right. And then then they go into a withdrawal symptom uh, and begin to have sweats and chills and shakes and tremors and things like that. So go ahead. Yeah, those first three symptoms are what Mm -hmm. we refer to as the physiological symptoms, Mm -hmm. which really clearly show the the neurological and biological aspect of a substance use disorder. Then there's a a group of symptoms that have more to do with their social and occupational functioning, like impairment in work, impairment in relationships, impairment in general motivation for life. Uh, Another symptom is craving. And craving is, it's both uh, has to do with memory as well as it has to do with biology. 
so with that, there's maybe a few others like use in risky situations mm-hmm. um, and the physical and psychological problems that are caused by the substance use disorder. Mm-hmm. So many times we have begun working with with patients who thought they had a variety of mental health problems when really those manifestations were the consequence of their substance use disorder. So the most common things we see are things like anxiety, Mm -hmm. insomnia, and depression, because those all will follow heavy use of any kind of intoxicating substance. Absolutely. You know, again, kind of in in my world of specialty of working with chronic pain patients and saying, you know, I'm not an addict. I need pain medication, right? I have a physiological disease. What do you think of that term addict and what does that mean? And how do you help someone overcome the feeling of uh, negativity towards that word? Yeah. Yeah. I heard a patient say that to me and I said, I'm never going to call you an addict. Mm -hmm. And we got some pretty clear instruction from the drug czar back uh, in the previous uh, presidential administration. His name Michael Botticelli. Mm-hmm. I love saying that. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> and he sent a memo out to the healthcare industry and said, y'all stop using the word addict. Stop using the word alcoholic because it's, it's a pejorative term and there's mm-hmm. a lot of shame and stigma associated with it. So I don't use the term, I I don't hold it against anybody that if they want to identify themselves to help them come to a state of humility about their their need to really know that, hey, I can't mess with substances because, you know, I'm an addict. But I would discourage anyone else from calling another person that because, again, it puts barriers up. And that's Mm -hmm. there's some very clear behavioral health research that has concluded one of the barriers to people getting help is this stigma associated with addict or mm-hmm. addiction. And again, right. it's that caricature that we've always seen in in movies or in other media. street addicts yeah, and heroin right. addicts on the street and homeless people. Right on. And so many people are really, you know, you've heard the term functional alcoholic. Mm-hmm. So many people are really able to hold their life together. Yeah. But the thing is, they're not really experiencing wellness in their life. And that, that's what we do with recovery is yeah. we help them to, to get to wellness. Can you help the audience as family members, as friends, as neighbors and colleagues to help recognize um, what may be going on with the folks around them? Yeah, right on. And I'll tell you that I really do believe in the power of love and of connection. That is essential in the recovery process. And it's usually what bridges that gap from somebody who's in a state of disordered substance use. They don't want to acknowledge it. They mm-hmm. don't think there's anything wrong with them. And when even somebody offers help, they, they feel a sense of judgment. Mm-hmm. So I would say to, to have a loving attitude and to make a connection instead of being judgmental and demanding, but to say, hey, look, I think the, the classic movement from a, a position of love is to say, I have seen your substance use become a problem in your life. And then give real clear, concrete examples. Like you fell asleep in your car and there was a six pack of bottles behind you. Mm-hmm. Now, there's no need to put any kind of judgmental attitude. That was crazy. Mm-hmm. You could have killed everybody. No, just make a clear statement. And if a person can process that information, particularly for someone who loves them, mm-hmm. and they, it, it may settle. It may take a minute or a day or a week or a month for them to really realize that, hey, this is dangerous. Mm-hmm. It, it, and it's not my best 
functioning. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's yeah. that's it to you know offer help. Okay. Well, and it's 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 helping them. It's our job as their village to help them to live their best life, right? right. So, if, and 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 addiction, you know, like you were saying, there's nothing to be afraid of or, or ashamed of. It's we all stumble. Yeah. Right? Yeah. We just stumble in different ways. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of stumbling and, and addiction and substance, disordered substance use, what uh, talk just a little bit about uh, what we call comorbid uh, addiction and mental health right. in, in our field. And, yeah. and if someone has uh, a physiological dependence on uh, medication or prescription, uh, and it becomes a problem in their life. Do they also have a mental health disorder, other mental health disorders, or talk a little bit about that? Right. So it really, you know, that old question, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Mm-hmm. It's sometimes the chicken and sometimes the egg. Yeah. You know, sometimes people have a pre-existing mental health problem, like a major depressive disorder, a bipolar disorder, which is major depression and what we call mania, Mm -hmm. or they may have an anxiety disorder. A lot of the anxiety disorder is a discomfort, this stress, this worry. And oftentimes people find substances a way to manage Mm -hmm. their stress. So in some cases, people have a a a mental health disturbance first and they find substances like their medicine right other times people are engaging in recreational experimental kind of use of substances and as i said earlier when a person consumes large amounts of an intoxicating substances it is going to kind of leave a mess on its way out and mm-hmm. that's where people experience the anxiety. Mm-hmm. They'll, they'll experience that the next day. And so many patients that we've worked with that had been diagnosed with hypertension mm-hmm. and had an alcohol use disorder really didn't have hypertension. They were just going through withdrawal every yeah, absolutely. day. Absolutely. Every day. Every day. Yeah. And so when we, we got them sober and they stopped drinking, what happens sometimes is the anxiety resolves, the depression resolves. So we really need to be able to work with someone. First off, it's essential to have a comprehensive diagnostic evaluation on the front end. Mm -hmm. So many times people get diagnosed with mental health disorders through a very brief interaction with some kind of primary care uh, person. Mm -hmm. And they get started on a medication, but they've never been through a real comprehensive evaluation. So that's one way to catch it. But the other way to catch it is to give sobriety an opportunity to settle in in their life. And to see where that leaves the baseline. And a lot of times it's 90 days. That's kind of like the key window. Yeah. So when we're talking about the comprehensive diagnostic evaluation, uh, do you look at the causes that contribute to the development of the substance use disorder? Yes, absolutely. And some of the causes that contribute to a substance use disorder, uh, one of them is genetics. Mm -hmm. There, There is such a high incidence of people having this family history of a substance use disorder. And there were some very interesting studies that were done by looking at whether or not children that were adopted at birth Mm -hmm. developed uh, substance use disorder. The incidence is the same whether they were raised with the parent or they were adopted away. So there's clear indication of that genetic predisposition. Uh, There's also um, metabolic 
factors that mm-hmm. contribute to the cause of a substance use disorder. And when I say metabolic, what happens is your body is is got this plasticity to it, and it will begin to adapt and adjust. Another term they use in in genetics is epigenetics. Epigenetics, mm-hmm. and and so the 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 really the the structure of the cells and the way they react to certain substances alters, mm-hmm. which creates this physiological change in the person. Some other factors uh, involve stress. Mm-hmm. You know, when a person's experiencing stress that they just can't seem to shake or can't seem to resolve, they have this natural tendency to look for a solution, and a martini, a few beers, mm-hmm. a, a pill seem to provide that release and that's where memory comes in too people remember that that drink calmed me down yeah what are the physical signs that we can look for in a family member or a friend or all of that i've heard skin the skin changing Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. weight gain in certain areas Mm -hmm. what what are some of those you know and that's a great question the thing that if you wait until you see the physical symptoms that condition has already progressed to severe it's become a chronic severe it's become a chronic severe but each drug class there's 18 different classes of drugs that have criteria for a substance use disorder or withdrawal and so the stimulants one thing that that you really can tell is pupil Mm -hmm. dilation Mm -hmm. Uh, so when a person is taking a stimulant their pupil is dilated. Now, I heard, uh, you know, I, I've been using that technique to kind of get a quick, you know, sure. check. But then I saw the show that explained about love and attraction and romance. And it described how the pupils will dilate mm-hmm. when a person gets that kind of an affectionate, aroused feeling themselves. So, you know, you can't be exact on all of it, but the, the round, you know, enlarged, dilated pupils indicate stimulant use. The constricted pupils indicate an opiate use. Uh, some of the other factors, like weight loss, that's typical mm-hmm. of, of chronic stimulant use, the skin conditions. There's so many aspects of what happens neurologically when a person continues to just bombard themselves, particularly with some of the more dirty drugs, mm-hmm. the, the ones like methamphetamine or uh, crack cocaine drugs that are that are manufactured in some pretty shady conditions, that it has all these toxins in it that leach out in the skin, mm-hmm. that deteriorate the enamel in the teeth. Uh, so you see that with the stimulants, methamphetamine. Uh, the other thing is the gut. I mean, that's one thing to, with the alcohol, the chronic the alcohol. distended belly. I remember one time uh, shopping for a swimsuit with my uncle. Mm-hmm. And my uncle, I swear it looked like he had a watermelon in his gut. Mm. But he was shopping for a swimsuit. He ended up getting a 34 waist swimsuit, <laughs> which was the same as mine at that time. <laughs> but he had this watermelon in his gut. The thing is, his legs were spindly, his arms were spindly. Mm-hmm. Now, this was probably 40 That's years. That's physical signs. Yeah. yeah. This is like chronic. 40 years of, of mm-hmm. chronic alcohol uh, overuse. And that's because the liver, it just accumulates fatty tissue. Yeah. And it becomes three, four, five times enlarged. Yeah. Eats the muscle, makes the muscle mass much smaller. Real thin arms, spindly arms, spindly legs, yeah. distended belly, mm-hmm. red nose with veins. Mm-hmm. It's also a symptom of uh, chronic mm-hmm. or sign of chronic alcohol use. Yeah. So the I'll tell you, way- one of the sneaky symptoms, yeah. though, that are early on is yeah. is being secretive about use. Okay. When people are, are they're trying to hide the fact that mm-hmm. they're, you know, smoking uh, weed or drinking. 
that's an indicator that they've got mm-hmm. some feeling of of guilt. They've got they've got some reservation. They know they shouldn't be doing it. Absolutely, and hide it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's so the, the whole idea is catching it early. Yeah, absolutely. Is there any other advice that we haven't covered about in, catching, in catching it, early. it early? So that, yeah. like you said, so that we you so that you can treat it and catch it three right. months, unwind it. Yeah, one of the really advocacy campaigns that I have every time that I speak or, or talk to an audience about substance use disorder is I really try to try to destigmatize substance use disorder. Yeah. And you know, catching it early is to create this 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 uh, absence of stigma associated mm-hmm. with a substance use disorder and with getting help. And yeah. I think it's uh, it's a, sometimes it's very helpful. When somebody who has kind of struggled before mm-hmm. is able to share that in a loving, caring, kind of hu- humble way. Mm-hmm. And it often opens people's heart up to say, well, look, you know, I mean, that guy, that woman seems to be like me. And they had this problem and they got better. Mm-hmm. One of the one of the liabilities or one of the, the limitations of that, too, is that sometimes people that get into recovery become really emphatic and evangelistic about their their attitude. And sometimes they will True. sound very judgmental. So right. I, I, I really want to encourage find that middle path and come with with, uh, you know, a, a place of love and acceptance without judgment. Yeah. Well, and another thing, too, I think a lot of folks think that if they're discovered, they're going to have to go to some rehab and sit right. with a group of 20 or 30 people mm-hmm. and just, um, you know, having it all out there, which isn't the case. I mean, they can come to J. Flowers Health Institute. It's anonymous. Right. Let's talk a little bit about how coming to us, you know, it's just a, a totally different way of going about it. Yeah. Sure. Very private. Uh Obviously, confidentiality is of the utmost concern for our clients and for us, and and it's really required by us anyway. So we would do that in any phase of treatment or any type of treatment. But, you know, uh, Dr. Bryant, why don't you talk, before we go into the phases of treatment, let's talk about the comprehensive diagnostic evaluation uh, from your perspective and and what that is and how we maintain privacy and and uh, maybe talk a little bit about J Flowers Health Institute and what we achieve out of that evaluation. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and it really is a 360-degree view of a person and an evaluation in all of these eight dimensions of wellness in their life. And it begins with the overall uh, evaluation of their current condition, what kind of symptoms are they experiencing, mm-hmm. what kind of disturbances is creating in their life. And then we will incorporate other aspects of medical, physiological, auditory, people's hearing, people's vision, their nutrition, their health. And we will put all of this together and we will communicate as a team that's one of the most uh, collaboration that's yeah. Yeah, so that, important that's one of the most inspirational things about it mm-hmm. is that these minds which like dr flowers who have had 30 years of experience and they've seen you know there there's that that commercial they say we know a thing or two because we've seen a thing or two <laughs> there you go and this man has seen a thing or two and some of the other providers we have in our team so we're able to even be challenging with each other that's mm-hmm. a beautiful thing about this this peer 
relationship with mm -hmm. the other providers is that someone will say, no, I don't think that's right. I think it's really this. And then we have that very stimulating kind of mm -hmm. interactive. I heard you say it's kind of like House, that TV show. You that's know? right. Yeah. We, he'll, he'll throw a problem down on the table and we figure it out. That's and it. Yeah. sometimes we figure it out and it goes, nope, that's not it. Keep working on it. Right. So mm -hmm. that's what happens. And it's done yeah. in about seven to 10 days. Mm -hmm. It's done on an mm -hmm. outpatient basis mm -hmm. in a concierge care, as uh, Robin mentioned, a concierge care, which is really the highest level seven star service yeah. is people are getting escorted. They're being uh they're yep. they're being transported kind of by one of our patient liaisons. Care coordinator. They're, yeah, there you go. Mm -hmm. And they're in an individualized kind of a care setting, yeah. staying in a luxury accommodation, and they're able to really take that time to open themselves up, let us get a peek in, and hopefully we've established enough trust where where they will receive the recommendation That's that we right. give them. Yeah. And then we work to place them in the proper treatment program. And, you know, I've always thought that, that uh, you know, there's plenty of programs out there that do what we call an assessment. Um, we do something called a comprehensive diagnostic assessment, which means that it's deeper. We do a deeper dive. No matter, we are not going to let, allow a patient to leave and go home until we figure the problem out. So many people come to us with unknown medical conditions unknown behavioral conditions and families and loved ones just can't figure out what's going on. They've been all over the country, sometimes all over the world, in fact, uh -huh. trying to figure out the proper diagnosis and haven't been able to do that. Uh -huh. I remember last year we saw a 73, 74-year-old gentleman uh, from Reno uh, who had been to five or six different academic institutions around the country and left without a diagnosis and they couldn't figure it out because <sighs> they were three or four day evaluations. He stayed with us for four weeks and it took us four weeks, eight hours a day to really dig deep and dive in. And we ultimately diagnosed him with an occipital nerve problem uh, because he had had a tooth extracted, believe it or not, three years earlier. And when he had that tooth extracted, it loosened the occipital nerve and uh, uh, hinged the nerve on the medulla, which caused like an electric shock on a car battery. And he became nauseous and dizzy. And so when we figured that out through yeah. diagnostic imaging yeah. that no one else had bothered doing on the medulla in the back of the brain, we figured that out and they did a small keyhole incision, moved the occipital nerve off the medulla of the brain, little small, less than half an inch uh, opening, his nausea, pain, everything went away just in an instant. And that man is back home riding horses, living on a ranch, playing racquetball, as a matter of fact, doing anything that he really wants. And so whatever yeah. specialty is needed, neurosurgeon, neurologist, orthopedic surgeon, interventional pain, neuropsychology, uh, spirituality, uh, such an important role uh, in, in the evaluation process. Right. But whatever it is, we build that true living MRI diagnostic image of that person and then help them with a roadmap for the future. Right. That's awesome. Well, we yeah. only have two minutes left. So with that two minutes, what would you, if, if I give you one minute, what would you like to share that we haven't already covered? You know, as we wrap it up here, I think what I'd like to share is really not me sharing something, but asking Dr. Bryant a question about spirituality, oh, because we haven't nice. talked about that. Yeah. And so, Dr. Bryant, why don't you, if you will, tell the audience uh, what uh, we as a team believe about spirituality and the importance of spirituality in recovery? Yeah, great question. You know, spirituality 
it's it's an innate dimension of the human experience. We didn't invent it as some kind of intervention mm-hmm. to help people feel better about themselves. It is it it emerged from the essence of humanity, and it's expressed in so many diverse ways. And that's the important part of our approach with our mm-hmm. clients is to let them express their spirituality and to help them access that and utilize it as a as a inspiration for their movement toward wellness. Right. Absolutely. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. And so if someone wants to know more about Jay Flowers Health Institute, how would they contact us? Well, I absolutely suggest everyone go look at our website and it's jflowershealth.com. So jflowershealth.com. They can also call our main number uh, 713-783-6655 or go to jflowershealth.com. Dr. Bryant, thank you so much for being our guest today. You're such a critical component to this team. And Robin, always amazing being my uh, Ed McMahon of of (laughs) podcasting. So thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. See you next week, everyone.